0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this afternoon comes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 2, verse 4, through 3, verse 24. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the lord god had made he said to the woman Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Did God, then, create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where, then, did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the reality of sin as we move our way through the Heidelberg Catechism the reality of sin has already been impressed on us. The Lord's Day 2. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. We considered that a few weeks ago. We know that we are sinful. We know as we look around us, we can see the plight of humanity. We know from God's law, which shines as our lives and shows to us our sin, we know in light of God's holiness, which his law also teaches us about, and and his word expresses to us that we are sinful. On one level, it's self-evident that there's sin in this world. Even in our culture, which the word of God is largely rejected, the idea that that humans have sin, or, or perhaps is defined in some other way, that there is something wrong in the world, is not controversial. We, we hear about it. You read about it in a newspaper every day. You hear about, as I was this past week sitting in an airport, heard about another man attempting a mass murder, holding hostages. Whenever we hear about another young man, generally it seems to be a young man, who snaps and turns to mass violence, we hear that common refrain, I never would have expected that from him. I never saw it coming. He was such a nice guy. He didn't seem to have that capacity within him. We recognize that that young man stands in for any young man or any person. That capacity is there within us. And as we noted in Lord's Day 2, it's, it's not only violent crime, of course, for which we have a capacity, but that we are pervasively filled with, with self-interest, self-focus, and God-forgetfulness. We were made for the glory of God, but as human beings, in a general sense, we live our lives forgetful or even in denial of the God who made us, rather than glorifying him. And so we saw that God's law, as it, as it teaches us how we are to live, how we are to live in his image, how we are to live according to his will, God's law in fact exposes the depth and the breadth of our sin. Now the question that quite naturally comes, and it, it flows very naturally in the catechism, In understanding sin, understanding our world, understanding our own hearts is the question. Now, where did all this come from? Where did all this come from? How did this start? How did we get here? Was it always this way? Stepping back from the word of God for a moment considering the ideas, philosophies that have been in our world, you realize that this idea of, of how did we get here, into this fallen state, into this broken world, has been a question that many people have tried to answer in various ways. And at various times, different ideas have been popular. In ancient times, the narrative of eternal dualism, was the popular idea of the day. It was the favorite of many ancient philosophers and ancient religions. The idea that there has always been a struggle between two forces, between good and evil. All the way back in time, there was good, there was evil, they were at odds. The world was created out of this struggle, and the world continues to reflect this struggle in the way that life carries out. So the question of, of what is sin and where did it come from is quite simply answered in that, in that philosophy. Sin just is. It just is. It always was. Sin always has been in the struggle between good and bad. There's also another narrative, the narrative of reincarnation. The narrative of reincarnation popular among the pantheistic religions of the day, even today. Hindus, for example, believe in this narrative. That every soul moves up or down the the ladder of existence through cycles of incarnation until the, the soul at one point, having reached the top, is released to become a part of the eternal spirit. God, you might say, with a small g. So this is, is another narrative. So, so what is sin and where did it come from? Well, sin is, is a part of the, the meaningless of this cycle of life as, as lives move up and down this ladder of existence. Sin is the meaninglessness of life, or maybe even sin is what moves you down the ladder. You need to avoid that in order to move up and be released from the meaninglessness of life. And so sin, again, it, it just is. You, you try to avoid it as much as possible. You can avoid it by, by disengaging your mind from the, the broken realities of this world, according to the narrative of reincarnation. There's also the narrative of naturalism, the predominant idea, in fact, in our secular materialistic Western culture, the idea that we live in a closed universe, no interference from God, and so what can be rationally, uh, what can be observed and rationally verified is what is, that that's what, what exists, what can be observed and, and rationally verified. That's the framework of our world. And as an aside, this is also the framework generally, in a general sense, in which the natural sciences operate. They operate according to a closed universe. And they're about observation and creating hypotheses from these observations and coming to conclusions as a result. Largely, it's a a closed universe. You can't allow for anything else acting on or, or around this universe there's no, there's no science of the spiritual. There's only the science of the physical and the material. Now, we, I mention that because we live in a scientific age. We live in a time when many people are involved with the natural sciences. It's important for us to realize that, that those assumptions about a closed universe are there in the natural sciences and that's just the way it is. And that a Christian can operate within that framework effectively. A Christian can work and observe and learn and understand the way this world operates according to what we can see and understand by our tests, our experiments, and our results. Science in itself is not set up to delude Christians, to fool them, but we must recognize what science can do and what natural sciences can't do. Now, the narrative of human history that's promoted by this secular and scientific impulse is the narrative of evolutionary progress, that at one time stuff existed, and then at a certain point later life existed, and that by means of of time, random chance, and the biological process of natural selection, life has moved and evolved to a point at which we find ourselves today. It's just sort of moved along this way by these three means so what is sin and where did it come from well sin defined in in terms of the brokenness of this world is is actually a, a part of this process it's just a natural part and perhaps you might even say a consequence of the process of evolution It's neither good nor bad. It's just the way that things move as they move seemingly without purpose, according to time, chance and natural selection until whatever end they go to. And so there's a certain meaninglessness in this process. And we are just, we're just one part along the road. That's the narrative of naturalism. There's another narrative, the narrative of deism. This one time, even in the church's history, was a very predominant narrative. The, the idea that God created this world and, and instilled in it natural laws when he created it. God, the, the picture within deism is that God is like a clockmaker. He sets up the clock, he makes all the structures for it, and then he winds up the clock, he sets it aside, and lets it run, run its course. Remains, after creating it, setting up those natural laws, remains uninvolved, with the universe and everything that operates within it. And so sin then is something that God has created into this the order, or maybe something that went wrong in the order. But we'll just see how things work out as they progress. And then finally we come, we return now to the Word of God. We come to the narrative of Scripture. And that's the narrative we're going to consider this afternoon. The narrative of creation, and fall, redemption, consummation. This is, this is the account, the history that scripture gives us about sin and about the reality of sin and the reality of God and the reality of salvation. Scripture reveals to us the reality of creation. Scripture also reveals to us the reality of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. That's where it started for us. Finally, Scripture reveals to us the reality of redemption. We'll leave the consummation part out for now. We'll finish off with the reality of redemption as this account of the creation and fall gives way to the reality of God's good redemption in salvation through Jesus Christ the narrative of scripture is you can understand at odds with the narratives described already and scripture some of those narratives are extremely historical in their approach and some of the narratives are extremely unhistorical in their approach scripture is overwhelmingly historical but it's not historical in the way that we think of history today scripture is not given to us uh, through the through the the pen of some journalist who's writing down exactly everything that happened. But scripture is given to us in a history, a very focused and purposed history. It's a history that's especially focused on the relationship between God and mankind between God and those whom he's made in his image, man, mankind, God, more specifically, you might say, and his people. You notice that, for example, in Genesis 12, When we read about this man, Abraham, who God called out of Ur, there are all sorts of things happening in the world at that time when God calls Abraham out of Ur. He doesn't tell us everything that's happening there, but he does tell us what happens with this one man, Abraham, from whom God will create a great nation that will be a blessing to the world and from whom the seed of Abraham will come, Jesus Christ the Lord. The same way, Genesis 10, Genesis 5, we have these genealogies. They don't give the account of everything that's happening in every family tree in the world, but they do teach us what's happening with the seed of the woman, with these lines, the line of Abraham that leads to Abraham, the line that comes from Seth. Also, Genesis 1, that account of the creation of heaven and earth and all things is extremely brief. There's so much there that it doesn't say. But as it's as it's giving us account of creation, everything is setting up for God providing a home for man to live and to serve and glorify his God. The man who he's created in his own image to have dominion over the earth. The narrative scripture is the narrative of creation, fall, redemption and consummation. The narrative of scripture is that God is eternal, but his creation is not. God created the world and he created mankind. And when he formed man from the dust of the ground and the woman from the man, he was distinctly different from the rest of creation. Adam and Eve were distinctly different from the rest of the creation. They were made in the image of God. It's a point that's even emphasized in the account. So God created man. There's this, this poem there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So from this account of the faithful and true word of God, we understand that the reality of sin is obvious from the world around us, from a consideration of our hearts and lives, and from the law of God, but that this was not how we were made. Sin has not just always been Sin is is not some, some part of the process. Sin is not how we were created. Rather, when God formed the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, he made him good. It's emphasized in the account. He made him good in his own image. God says after that day, his creation is very good. It's the highest, the climax of his creation. Man was created Very good. Adam was created and he was immediately upon his creation and always until his fall in a right and proper relationship with God. From his creation until his fall in a right and proper relationship with God, he was righteous. He was just. He was obedient. It's true that the garden contained a test for Adam not to eat from that tree. But Adam had the resources and Eve as well within his heart and soul and body and mind to perfectly obey all of God's commands. Adam had that ability. He was created with it. It was intrinsic to who he was. And created in that image of God, Adam and Eve had inherent dignity and worth. He was precious in God's eyes. There he was, therefore he was objectively valuable, and full of dignity. And that, that dignity and worth that Adam and Eve were created with was not a consequence of their obedience. It wasn't a consequence of their obedience. You, you realize what, what would happen to that dignity and worth if it was a consequence of their obedience. It would mean after they disobeyed, they would have no dignity and worth. But it was not a consequence of their obedience. It was a consequence of their very creation in the image of God. And therefore, that dignity extends even beyond the fall into sin up to this day in all humanity, in all tribes and tongues and nations of the world, from the very youngest in the womb to the very oldest, just before the last breath that God gives them in their life, created, made with dignity, value, and worth what god's word teaches us in the good creation of adam and eve so what was our first father adam's relationship with god the catechism summarizes it very well we were created to rightly know god our creator to rightly know adam's heart and mind were not clouded and tainted with sin as ours are we cannot get apart from it. But Adam didn't have that cloud. He didn't have that struggle. He, he could perfectly know God with no fuzziness or cloudiness about it. He knew God as he was. He didn't know God in his totality. In his, he didn't have a completely comprehensive knowledge of God. But what he had was a true knowledge of God. His knowledge of God was right and true. He knew nothing false about God. And that knowledge filled him with joy and praise toward God. So he rightly knew God and he heartily loved God. Their hearts were tuned to sing the song that God sings. When, when God spoke his word to them, their hearts were tuned to respond and resonate with love to God. Love, of course, is a commitment to self-giving service that's encompassed by affection and desire. Adam and Eve had that completely for God. They were made to live with God. They did live with God. They lived in in the garden of God's own making, the special place that God had made for them. They were the privileged guests to whom the eternal God extended divine hospitality. They were the dear children to whom God the Father extended his familial love and care. Embrace them. They lived with him. They praised and glorified God. Their knowledge, their love, this inclusion, it gave way to the ultimate purpose for which God had first made them the glory of himself. This is the ultimate purpose for which God has created man and all of his good creation. The the earth was not ultimately made to be a home for us. Although it is our home. We were not ultimately made for our own comforts and pleasures. Even though we enjoyed immense comforts and pleasures in the garden. And even today. We were made in the image of God. To reflect the glory of God. We were made to praise, honor, and exalt God. In our minds, our hearts, and with our bodies. Everything that we do. Everything that we are. That's the purpose for which God made Adam and Eve, and they fulfilled that purpose. Considering the way in which Adam and Eve related with God in the garden, you recognize, of course, that we no longer are there. We no longer live in the garden. We no longer have this perfectly right, true, uh, knowing, loving, living with, and praising relationship with God. There is the reality of God's good creation of Adam and Eve. But there is also the reality of the fall. Adam and Eve took from that tree from which they were not to take, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They desired to become like God. And in doing so, they left behind that fulfilling knowledge, that perfect love, that submissive obedience, that holistic praise and glory. And they plunged themselves and the entire human race created in the image of God into sin and darkness. so there's no escaping it for all humanity born children of adam and eve born into sin and darkness the word of god is very clear that this fall actually happened that is it's it's not a figment of of moses creativity Sort of think up this story in order to explain to Israel why things were the way they were today. It's not, it's not the result, as some commentators say, of, of some post-exile community, their, their heart need, well they needed to explain what had happened and so they went all the way back and formed this nice story. No, it's historical fact. It's historical fact. It's presented as historical fact. It's as, just as historical in fact, as the birth and death Of Jesus Christ. And why do I bring up these examples? Well, because that's a comparison that scripture itself makes. The historical birth of Jesus Christ is connected with the historical birth of Adam. And the historical death of Jesus Christ is tied with the historical fall of Adam. Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus Christ that traces back. As Luke traces it back, he traces it all the way back to Adam Son of God. Now, Luke, of course, isn't anticipating the controversies that will come in in the church and in that we have experienced in past centuries. But his point does that Adam is a historical being. Luke's gospel is grounded in is grounding, sorry, the events of Christ's life and death in historical certainty. Luke, above all the other gospel writers, is very historical. He's including all of these names and dates of people who lived. He's grounding everything that happened in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in its historical reality. And right there at the beginning of the account, he grounds the historical reality of Jesus Christ in the historical reality of Adam and his lineage all the way up until the time of Christ. So the birth of Jesus Christ is as historical as the birth of Adam. And Paul, later in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, connects the reality of Christ's death with the reality of Adam's fall in Romans 5. This is what he says in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man... He's speaking about Adam there. He says his name earlier. Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, full of scripture in his mind, and his heart, he understands the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to put yourself into Paul's space here. Paul was a man who at one time persecuted the church. His entire life was given to fighting against the church, to fighting against those who confessed Jesus Christ as their Messiah, because he said there could be no such thing. There is no risen Messiah. You are deluded. You are wrong. You are dangerous. I'm going to throw you in prison or put you to death for what you preach. But Paul was a man changed. Why? Because he was walking along a road to Damascus and suddenly before him was the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In the flesh, he saw him. He knew he was real. And so Paul's life changed completely at that point because now he had seen the risen Christ and from the risen Christ, he knew that the dying Christ had done something effective and that the the word of God in the Old Testament spoke about that. Paul's life became grounded, staked in up until giving his own life in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. Putting that work of Jesus Christ on the cross, followed by his resurrection, together with the scriptural account of the entrance of sin and death through Adam, Paul made sense of this narrative of scripture. He saw it. Just as Christ truly did die and rise again, just as Adam truly did sin. So we have salvation. Just as through Adam's fall death came into the world for all people, so through Christ's death was atonement made for all people. That is, all the people in the world who repent of their sins and believe in the risen Messiah. So the weight of Paul's argument cannot be escaped. Just as there was one man, Adam, through whose condemnation came, through whom condemnation came in the world, so there is one man, Christ, through whom salvation comes. Adam sinned in the garden he plunged himself all humanity into darkness and rebellion as a result but what the reality of the fall of adam and eve in the in paradise gives way to as we come to the new testament is the reality of redemption through jesus christ that which paul spoke about question 8 the heidelberg catechism is a question that leads us to this now it may not seem like it's a question that would give way to the gospel of our lord jesus christ it's decidedly negative comprehensively negative in fact at the beginning of its answer the question is almost brutal the way it's asked consider this but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good And inclined to all evil. It's brutal. In its scope, in its depth, in its comprehensively speaking about sin and and asking, is there, does this completely affect us? And then it's also brutally answer, brutally honest in its answer. Yes. Yes, that's true. The only answer from scripture Understanding both our good creation and our fall is yes. Yes, we are fallen. Adam's fall was a real historic fall. He sinned. It couldn't go back. You can't rewrite that story. God's command was real, a real historic command. God said, don't eat of it. And Adam did. Adam's transgression was a real historic transgression. He took and he ate and he sinned. And God's curse was a real and binding curse. But that first Adam that scripture reveals is not the only Adam. That scripture reveals. In fact, the word of God is relentless in, in pointing toward, in driving toward, in revealing throughout the Old Testament in shadows, in types, in prophecies, the second Adam, the one whom the gospels reveal, the one whom Paul wrote of, the, of Jesus the Christ, the incarnate son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, the second Adam who has come to bring salvation to all those who are lost in sin in the first Adam. And this Jesus did truly die on the cross for sin, sin, and did truly rise victorious and vindicated from the grave. This Jesus ascended into heaven and sends out his spirit into the world and into the hearts of sinners, corrupt children of Adam, those who draw their lineage back to Adam, conceived and born in sin, lost in sin and darkness, with hearts that are dead toward God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, the Spirit regenerates hearts. He speaks life into the deadness. He makes something out of nothing. He speaks the gospel into our inner person and brings that person to life. He communicates the life-saving power of the cross to the lives of sinners and makes them alive to God as he once breathed life into Adam to make him a living soul. With that same power, he now breathes, breathes new life into the sons of Adam to make them sons of God, united under the saving work of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. This is what Scripture tells us about our creation, about our fall, and about our redemption. This is the reality of our redemption. This is the reality of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ through grace applied by the Holy Spirit to the praise and glory of God. It's a reality that's tied in every way to the reality of Adam and Eve, their good creation and their terrible fall. And it's a reality that once again tunes our hearts to sing the praises of the almighty, all-powerful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who has not left us in our sin, the God who has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, tunes our hearts to sing the praise of the God who not only creates, but of the God who saves. Amen.